listening to My Unlived Life, a podcast about the path not taken. I'm Miriam Robinson. A few years ago, my life fell apart in pretty dramatic fashion, and I found myself feeling that somewhere I'd made a wrong turn. I suddenly felt very far from home and family, and felt even farther from myself. I began to wonder, what if I had done things differently? We don't like to ask this question. It threatens to trap us in the past without a map back to the here and now. So I decided to make the map. Each episode, I interview someone about another course their lives could have taken. We begin at the point where their paths diverged and together, step-by-step, we imagine ourselves into the lives they never lived. Because these lives have a lot to teach us about ourselves, if we let them. For this episode, I spoke to Sandra Newman. Sandra is the author of four novels, including The Heavens and The Country of Ice Cream Star, and several best-selling nonfiction books on writing. She's currently working on a feminist retelling of 1984, and her most recent novel, The Men, is a disquieting tale of impossible sacrifices and is available in all good bookshops. When we spoke, Sandra and I discussed what her life might have looked like if, as a teenager, she'd not been afraid to answer honestly when a friend asked her a question about her sexuality. Along the way, we discussed the American suburbs, open relationships, and the particular joy of bottomless cups of coffee. Hi, Sandra. Hi, Miriam. It's lovely to be talking to you today. Your novel, The Men, which is out now, is sort of a feels like both a dystopia and a utopia, and feels also very much about loss and grief and also about hope and potential. And uh, with its central premise that one day all of the men simply disappear from the world. And these dystopias, these alternate worlds are obviously very much your space. This isn't your first rodeo with writing dystopian fiction. Mm -hmm. And it feels perfect, therefore, that we get to spend a little time exploring an alternate world for you. So I'm very much looking forward to doing that. But I wondered if first you could say something about what draws you to writing about these sort of what if explorations. You know, I'd I'd like to say that it's because I find the I find the real world unsatisfying, but I don't think I'm un, unusual in that. You know, I, I've always been fascinated with this question of why some people are really obsessed with science fiction and drawn to science fiction and other people find it completely unreadable and uninteresting because it's science fiction. And it's something that I found I'm not able to predict about any person who I meet, whether they'll be into science fiction or be a person who's completely impervious to its charms. But I don't know, like I was always a fantasist when I was a child. I I always wanted to be a fox or a horse or something like that. And I would write these involved stories um, which I would staple together into books that were about being a fox or a horse. I think I had an idea that someday I would finish one and it would be published, but I never actually finished all of the pages that I had stapled together. So they all remained like unfinished. And of course, I, I illustrated them as well. Do you still have them? I have one of them, which is about um, a stuffed lion who ran away from home and went on all these adventures. Uh, which was based on a real stuffed lion, which one of my friends owned, which I really coveted. So, What kind of adventures did the stuffed lion go on? Oh, well, he went to all these different lands. It was called Love's Magic Lands because the, the lion was named Love. And so some of them were bad and some of them were good. So there was one of them that was called Animal Land, where all the animals lived. But then there was another one called Hunter Land, where the hunters were killing all of the animals. Um, and I can't remember if, if Love and his sidekicks had to escape from Hunterland or if they defeated the hunters. I, but I've got that somewhere. I love that. I'll go in the Sandra Newman archive. Well, um, I think the childhood is um, a sort of good place to be for us because your path that you're going to explore today begins not in early childhood, but when you're a teenager. So I wonder if uh, to start us off, you could just say a little bit about sort of the years leading up to this moment 
just so we can get a little bit of context for what we're what we're heading into. Okay, so I was living in Massachusetts, and it's like suburban Massachusetts. Like actually, when I the few times that I've been back, it seems to be like a place that everyone left. I don't know anybody at all who still lives there, but it's really beautiful, and I don't didn't experience it that way when I was a child um, at all. And I think it was. It was one of those places where people mystifyingly only think about leaving. And never about staying or building a life there. Exactly. I don't, I don't know. It's like the magic of certain American suburbs where they, they managed to have no soul, even though like, we had at that time a state forest out the back of our house, which, which somehow has all been bulldozed and turned into more homes. But but at the time, it was a state forest, and so it was very beautiful. Like there was nothing wrong with the place, and my my personal childhood was very unhappy because my mother had serious mental health issues. But there was no particular reason that I can think of that everyone should be unhappy in the entire suburb. Yeah, it's which was how it seemed to me. Maybe it was just my friends, but but it does seem a little bit suspicious that I don't know of anyone who stayed there. American suburbs are really funny. I grew up in a suburb of Colorado where I feel like it's the opposite. I feel like when I go home, everyone is still there. And some mm. people left but came back specifically to sort of raise their own families. And I I couldn't get away fast enough. So I, I was one of the ones who fled. I once had a friend who was from Saskatoon in Saskatchewan. And he said when he goes home, um, not only are his friends all still there, but he can go back to the bar that they first used to go to as teenagers and they will all still be sitting there. So you, so you grew up in this, you were in this suburb that you visited recently Mm -hmm. and went to middle school and high school there. Yeah. Yeah. And, and what was, what was that like? What were you like as a student? What was I like? I was terrible. Um, I mean, I was a mess pretty much until I was in my, mid thirties, like everything was complete chaos. So when, but when I was a kid, I was one of those nerdy kids. I was like a theater kid during my entire childhood, but I also used to cut classes all the time. I actually, um, I was flunking out of school, but I also dropped out of school when I was 16, the instant that I was able to drop out of school. So, so I managed to combine like extreme nerdiness with a really bad attitude towards school, like the really the worst of all possible worlds in terms of school. So I did have friends like in the in the theater group, but but there was this kind of I think for for all such like nerdy kids, um, there's an atmosphere of fear at school because you're you're definitely the one who's going to get bullied if the bullies mm. begin to be in the mood to bully. Um, and there was a, a phase when I was targeted by some some bullies as well. Although really, when I look back on it, I got off pretty easily. It wasn't extreme bullying. Although, I mean, any of that can just feel so horrendous and can, especially as a teenager, can just ruin your life. Yeah, it was, it was like, the, there was nothing about it that I look back on and miss. Like that's, <laughs> that's really like the keynote of my childhood is that if, if it was entirely expunged from my memory, I would not be missing anything. Okay. Well, maybe we can, maybe we can make some, at least some different memories, if not some better ones. I won't um, assume yet. So, but you're still at high school. You haven't yet dropped out. So you're 15 years old. You're nerdy slash have a total disdain for the school and their authority. So you don't want to be there essentially. Um, But you do have some friends and some of these friends feature in your path. Is that right? Yeah, actually, I'll take back that there was nothing good in my life because my this friend group, um, which is all around this community theater in the town, was actually was actually kind of great. And at this time, I had a best friend who was, she was a year older. So I was 15 and she was 16. And she had a car. She, in every way, she was glamorous. She had a car. Her parents were, were richer than my parents. Not only were they richer, but they gave her a really big allowance which at the time it was like $20. So it seems ridiculous, but that was a lot of money to us then. And so, and she had gone to private school. That was like a huge big deal. 
I couldn't even mm. imagine anything as glamorous as that. So in every way, like she was this incredibly glamorous creature to me. She was in the community theater group or she was a friend from school? Yeah, at some point, <clears throat> I, I'm pretty sure I met her through the community theater group. She was in it for, for a brief period. Well, my feeling was that it was one of these kind of ambiguous friendships that I think a lot of teenagers have where really the two friends are more in love with each other than is normal. Like I definitely, I was, I was like madly in love with Jennifer. Like there's no question. The only (laughs) question is really whether it could have been a romantic relationship or not, which at the time I thought about a lot, but at my school, all bullying took the form of homophobia. Like there was no bullying without homophobia. There was no, the concept of bullying without homophobia did not yet exist. What does that mean? It means that every time anyone bullied anyone, they called them gay. They called them, you know, the F word. They called them a lesbian. That was how it always began. There was no bullying without that. Mm. So every, you know, there was like this intense kind of fear, but also like as a theater kid, like I would say at least a third of the people I knew were in the closet. And like, really like a lot of my child, a lot of my teen teen years were defined by that idea of people being closeted and homophobia and whether it was okay to be gay, which in some ways we, we thought that like actual gayness was kind of glamorous and amazing like as theater kids but in our real world and like our everyday kind of um school cafeteria world it was the most terrifying imaginable thing to be okay that gives some really good context for what comes next then so i think we're up to your path so at some point somebody asks you the question do you want to say what happened okay so it's one of these, it's, you know, a party at someone's house, but I think it was a Halloween party. Um, so we're all like dressed up in our like kid versions of the sexy nurse costume, being <laughs> as sexy as we possibly can at somebody's suburban house. And um, Jennifer had this friend, Ellen, who was, who was even cooler than Jennifer Ellen was like too cool for me even to really be friends with. Anyway, Ellen just took me aside. Like she, she kind of pulled me down a corridor into a bedroom as if she had a secret that she was going to tell me. And then she closed the door behind her and she said in like this burst, let's be frank. Are you bisexual? (gasps) And then time stopped. (laughs) And I was like, you know, like, Having her ask me like that, it it felt like absolutely obvious that the answer was yes, but I also didn't really know. And I still feel like I I don't know if you really, you know, I don't know if you can know that without ever having kissed a girl. I still haven't kissed a girl in my entire life. And also like all, like, you know, it was sort of like, almost my life passing before my eyes because I thought, what if Jennifer sent her to ask this question? Which is a very sort of normal teenage thing, right? Just to just the, the kind of getting your friend to do the thing that you really want to do yourself, all of that. Yeah, because me and Ellen never really talked to each other. It almost didn't make sense for her to... So, so like, either she was interested in me, which also would have been, like, a, something wonderful beyond my wildest dreams... Um, or Jennifer was interested in me, but it was also completely possible that it was just a prank. And that yeah. if I said yes, she would go back and tell people and they would all laugh at me. And I would be like the the joke of that party. And then everyone would be talking about it the next day. And my entire life would change because it would again be just like a whole cycle of bullying. But now bullying that's stretched into my friend group which is petrifying. And those are the kinds of calculations you have to make yeah. when you want to be honest or vulnerable as a teenager. And I mean, later in life as well, unfortunately, but definitely at that stage. But as it was, you know, I did the cost, 
um, the cost benefit calculation. And I panicked and, and froze and said, no. And what did Ellen do? She just, she just walked away. And I can't remember if there was any indication from her reaction of what the intent was. I think there wasn't, you know, we, we were teenagers and we had this way of being kind of affectless and approaching each other as if everything was meaningless and we were kind of cool. All right. So there we are. So that's your moment. This moment comes and, and, and you say no and turn away from it, which is very understandable. So what we're going to do now is we're going to change and we're going to be back at that party um, with everyone in their teenage sexy nurse outfits. And (laughs) Ellen comes into the room and asks you the question and you take a deep breath and you say, yes, what happens next? Yeah, which in retrospect was probably actually a completely safe thing to do. You think? How come? And I just like, their school was different from our school. (laughs) That's that's the thing. Like our school was, you know, a lot more working class kids and like lower middle class kids. Um, Even though it's a a pretty well off suburb, it was just much more of a towny kind of vibe. Um, And their school was a prep school and Ellen's world was very much the it's so much more sophisticated than my world I don't think there's any possibility that that she had an evil intent in asking me that question it seems like it's safe for us to assume benevolence on her part so if you say yes what do you think would have happened next well there are two there are two possibilities she might just have been curious so I've always kind of thought that she might have kissed me that's my fantasy about that moment anyway. Okay. Do you think that's what happens then? Okay. Let's say that's what happens. Okay. She kisses you. Then what? I think at that point, um, now we have a love triangle of sorts. Interesting. Say more. If we assume that she kisses me and I kiss her back and, you know, we're, we're making out in this bedroom and then, you know, being being awkward teenagers, we would probably then kind of go back to the party and not talk about what had happened. Mm, of course. If you see what I mean. Yeah, yeah. But then there would be, like, phone calls and meetings and, like, clandestine, like, sneakings off to parking lots and people's bedrooms and so on. And it would progress from there. So this would probably mean that... Um, I would be seeing Jennifer less, but I would be afraid to tell her what was happening at first. And how would that affect your friendship? Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because I I find it hard to even imagine a situation where she was jealous of me. She always had the power in the relationship to such an extreme degree. That's interesting. She was a year older and she had a car and she had a nicer house and so on. So, so you're saying that that might shift the power dynamic. Yeah, I I can't see how it would not shift the power dynamic. And Jennifer was like a really, um, a really amazing, charismatic person. Um, Where did you two connect? What was your friendship founded on? I don't know. We were sort of off in a fantasy world of our own. Um, But there was definitely flirtation going on. She had this boyfriend. She had a, an older boyfriend who was in college um, in Boston. And we would drive into Boston to see this boyfriend. And first, she I mean, she was bringing along me along on her dates with her boyfriend. And there was some fiction that we were going to, like, hook me up with his roommate. But actually, like, really, I was just a, along with her on her dates with her boyfriend. And there was there was one memorable occasion when... Like we were all there and we, we weren't even drinking yet. So we were doing all of this completely, absolutely stone cold sober. We, we ended up like just in his dorm room, like all lying in bed together, like laughing as if we were drunk and kind of all over each other. And, and I remember that as one of these sort of uh, liminal moments where if we were a little more mature, something really wild would have happened, but we weren't. Mm. So we just lay there and made jokes and were kind of 
like out of our minds on the idea of sex. But this was clearly like there there was some there was some part of it where it was really clear that that he was the spare part in the in the relationship. Just to backtrack a little bit, I'm just again interested in the power dynamic and in terms of your I guess I'm interested in your sort of sense of self if it changes the way you sort of view yourself because it was obviously a difficult time and school wasn't happy and home wasn't happy and I'm just wondering if having that sense of power does anything to sort of change how you feel about yourself or about your life I think like as a you know as I've been saying like being gay at that time in that place um was about as big a thing that as could happen to a person so I Mm. think that would have overwhelmed it a lot and I think it would have been big in good ways and bad ways it would have been, the, I think, a healthier way for me to define myself than what I actually ended up with. Which was? You know, that it was a very teenagery thing where you felt like, oh, I have problems. Like, And at that time, um, it was when psychiatry and talking about mental illness had first become really trendy. So we all, you know, all me and all of my friends, like thought of ourselves as being mentally ill and having all of these psychiatric problems, which were probably incurable and would end with us being in a mental hospital. Tragically, you know, we had, we read a lot of like really slushy books about people who committed suicide or had schizophrenia and were in in mental hospitals and glamorized that which is hard for me to imagine now as an adult having real experience. I mean, and I had it, it was weird actually, because I had a lot of experience of that from seeing my mother in mental hospitals, not a glamorous life in any way, mm-hmm. but, um, but somehow nonetheless, I managed to, to buy into all of that. So I defined myself that way for, for a long time thereafter. Can you just say just a practical note, where are we in time now in terms of, in terms of that moment in psychiatry in America where it becomes sort of all the rage? This would be probably 1982. Yeah. So it's really after the, the big peak of it, but yeah. But yeah, it's washing okay. it's washing through the suburbs now from the city, I guess. Well, and also, again, I think the suburbs were really ripe for that. Suburbs can be sort of vacuums. At their worst, I'm obviously very anti-suburbs, but um, <laughs> I think at their worst, they can, you know, they can they can have that sort of emptiness that needs to be filled by something, and that sort of self-defining mm-hmm. as morose and depressed and messed up um, is a really, as you say, a really kind of tangible way to to self-define in the absence of anything a little bit more sort of healthy and concrete and authentic. I think it's the authenticity that's lacking, isn't it? Yeah, and I think that's a lot of it is that that craving for something real in in this world. And it's it's strange because like again, like you would think that having grown up with my mother's very real problems, and she did she actually by this point she had committed suicide. She died when I was thirteen. So you'd think that would be real, but somehow to a child that it doesn't it's feel it doesn't feel that way. It's still you still feel as if you're living in some sort of prequel to the world and not in the real world. Mm. Um, Yes. Like you're the sort of first person to experience anything ever. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) But also, I mean, I don't know if this is a stretch, but I imagine that in a weird way, it might've been a way of linking to and connecting to your mother to feel that you had the same issues that she did. Oh yeah, I definitely. And I I think um, there was also like in our house, everything was about my mother, my mother's problems. And I think in order to be a person, I was almost in competition with her, like to, to be seen as a person who could, whose feelings could matter. You had to be on the same level as her. You had Mm. to be ready to kill yourself essentially before your feelings could have any importance whatsoever. But it wasn't just me. There were a lot of people who, who were the same in my high school. Who were you living with then? It's my brother and my father. Okay, so you've got, on one hand, you've got what is probably a very real fear because being gay in your school is 
the worst thing you could possibly be. And then simultaneously, you've got a sense of an authentic sense of self and something that feels really real um, because A, you've connected with somebody in this different way and B, you have something that's sort of yours in a way that I guess maybe uh, feels different in your dynamic with Jennifer. I'm wondering if you still leave school. This is a good question because, well, Jennifer encouraged me to leave school. Did she? Why? Uh, it was really just because both of us were extraordinarily impractical people and we didn't <laughs> understand <laughs> what the consequences of that decision would be. And at the time, we had this fantasy that we would, we, you know, I would leave school and then we would get jobs and move to Boston together. That was our, right. our dream. So we had this dream, but then... Um, and an episode that's still a little murky to me, she she just stopped talking to me suddenly. So I had left school and Jennifer completely stopped talking to me and I did not know why. It was sort of strange. I took my GED and a couple of days later, she got back in touch with me. In your unlived life, you've got this relationship with Ellen going on and you're, I guess, maybe preemptively distancing yourself as in as opposed to Jennifer distancing herself from you, you're you're distancing yourself from her a little bit. What happens next? Where does it go? What happens next is that I tell Jennifer about it. Okay. You know, I would set up some scene, probably like we would always go to these all night restaurants like Howard Johnson's. That was where <laughs> like all, all of our life like revolved around these places like Howard Johnson's and we would stay there like literally until dawn drinking, you know, they had a bottomless cup of coffee. So you'd order one cup coffee and you could stay there all night drinking coffee. So I would, I would have summoned her to like to a summit more or less at the Howard Johnson's <laughs> or the Denny's. I love this so much. <laughs> The Howard Johnson summit. It's amazing. Yeah. And we would have sat there and it, and I would have told her the whole story um, and we would have cried and all of that. And in my imagination, she then just the kind of person she was, I don't think she would have been able to cede control in that way. So I think she would have, she would have suggested that we make out too. This is, this is my belief. I think I would have ended up with two girlfriends is what I'm saying. Wow. Things have changed dramatically for you that in a very short period of time. This is great. But I think like I would probably still be unsure if I was really gay and I would be like, oh, my God, what have I done now? Now I'm here. And am I going to be am I just gay now or do I still like boys? Up to that point, actually, my... I had really only had one sort of boyfriend. So I had this one boyfriend who was a normal boyfriend when I was 14. Okay. And he's an odd person, but he's the relationship was pretty ordinary for that. And then he, he left me for my next door neighbor. I was never sure if the person who I was with, like him, and then there was another guy shortly afterwards who was gay and who was using me to cover up for another relationship he had. Okay. With both of them, I had these feelings like if we were kissing, I was like swept up in my sexual response, but then also just a little disgusted. So it was all really ambiguous. Like, were they actually attractive? Was it embarrassing to be into them? Because I certainly, I did not think of Ellen or Jennifer as being, as there being any ambiguity about about them being attractive. They were definitely attractive, glamorous people to me. With my first boyfriend, Tom, there was more of a question mark. Like 14-year-old boys are not, you know, I think I defy you to find a 14-year-old boy who's unequivocally attractive. Yeah, it's I mean, not... that is fundamentally part of the problem, right? Is that sort of teenage boys, yeah, you know, yeah. are teenage boys. <laughs> but then the other guy who is, who is essentially using me as a beard, he was 27. So he's like this 27-year-old guy who was going out with me, and that was supposed to be a secret, but he was also going out with a guy of my age, you know, we were both 16, 
And that was an even deeper secret. So he was using this kind of secret to cover up for that real secret. And it was, I think it was actually at the time, technically illegal for him to be with either of us. So the, the whole thing was, was really, it was genuinely sick. It was just objectively sick. And I recognized that it was sick, but I didn't actually understand why at that age, like I knew it was forbidden, but I thought that should make it more sexy, but actually it made it kind of gross. So you go from these two boys slash men um, to two girlfriends. Do they know about each other? Well, Jennifer obviously knows about Ellen, but then I would have to tell. And probably like being a teenager, I would handle it really badly. But actually, like as speaking as an older person, even though I was definitely in love with Jennifer, I have to say I hope that I would end up with Ellen and not Jennifer because Ellen was so much the better choice. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, Jennifer, if you're listening. Sorry, Jennifer. Why was Ellen the better choice? Like for you personally or in a sort of societal way or? I did not need a Jennifer girlfriend. I really needed an Ellen girlfriend at that time. It might have been a bit of a burden for Ellen, honestly, but. But sometimes, you know, that's one of the nice things about being um, gay in high school, if you're gay in high school, is that sometimes you can get a better girlfriend than you deserve because they don't have that much selection. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure Ellen could have her pick. But okay, so all right. So then so we're moving forward. Then you guys, are we saying that you guys end up together? We end up together, but since she's a year older, she goes off to college and forgets about me. But hopefully I would have stayed in school because I would have Ellen telling me that I should stay in school. I think Jennifer would still like absent herself. I think especially if she were not win- winning the con- the competition with Ellen, she would probably like go off as she did in real life and isolate herself for a while. So you... Um... Let's maybe let's get back to school in that case. So you'd stay in high school. I guess the first question is when you draw in, in real life, when you dropped out, what did you do? I didn't do much of anything at first. I did get a GED. And then um, I was going to go to the University of Massachusetts, Boston, which is like a, I guess, a commuter school. In terms of the UMass system, it, it was not as good. And at that time, it was really easy to get into a state school. It wasn't that competitive. So I was going to do that, but I decided instead, because I had spent like a year and a half just lying around in the house depressed, my father took me along with him on a business trip to London. And I fell in love with a an ice cream man in Hyde Park. And I decided... <laughs> that my destiny was in London. So on the day I was supposed to register for classes for the University of Massachusetts, instead, again, Jennifer being a terrible influence, by the way, Jennifer had driven me into Boston to do this. But when I decided I wasn't going to do it, she agreed with me and we just hung out at a McDonald's for for a few hours and then went home. What I'm loving also is just the tour of like food establishments that we're getting so far. It's really, it really adds some color to this. And when you say fell in love with the ice cream man, was it like, did you actually communicate with the ice cream man or it was just, he was just really beautiful and you decided that London was the place to be? Oh no, I had sex with the ice cream man. Well done. Wow. How? Oh my gosh. I think that was the reason I fell in love with him. You know, it was not that easy for for me to get somebody to sleep with me at that age. I was just way too awkward. And when did you end up coming to England? Was it soon after? It was. It was 1984. It was, and I was 18. I came to I came to live in England and went to went to school there, um, and lived there for 18 years. In London. Mostly in London, yeah. Almost entirely in London. Is that when you started writing professionally? Oh, no. Well, I, I wrote all along. I always, I was always writing and trying to finish a novel to get it published, but I didn't actually succeed in doing that until I was in my mid-30s. 
I really don't want to create a scenario where you don't get to meet the ice cream man, but let's go back anyways. <laughs> he's my favorite. Um, let's go back anyways, though, because in this unlived life, Ellen uh, convinces you or because you're with her, because the dynamic has shifted a bit, you'd stay in school. And what do your final years of high school look like? I guess I'd, I imagine myself like at, at Ellen's house while she, <laughs> while she practices the cello and I'm doing my homework on her bedroom floor. Yay. It's really nice. Because she's, she's a much cooler person with cool European parents. We drink wine together and have, and she introduces me to classical music. Then she goes off to, to university and, and abandons me. How do you cope with the abandonment? I like to think that she would string me along until I at least graduated high school. So You've got hope, like pulling you through high school. <laughs> and then I can graduate and go. And go where? Well, I think I would probably end up at the main United, uh, sorry, University of Massachusetts campus in Amherst. So yeah, I would have ended up in Amherst, I think. What do you study? Oh, definitely English. I've actually become less interesting now, though. That's the trouble with this scenario. <laughs> so I somehow managed to have like two girlfriends at the same time in high school and become a less interesting person. We don't know that necessarily, although possibly. But we have we've lost Ice Cream Man, so unfortunately, that really that like sets yeah. us back. But let's see, let's see where we go. Okay, well, we don't know yet if it's more boring or not. We've just it's just become a bit more normal, I guess, right? You've done you've done something quite normal, which is you've gone to university in the state where you live, and you're going to study English literature. Where are you living? Are you what do they do? They would have you would have been living on campus, presumably in dorms. Yeah, I would be living in a dorm. Well, one thing that's different in this scenario is that now at this age, I have no capacity to keep a secret. So, okay. So within within a very short period of time, everyone in the dorm would know that I had had a girlfriend in high school. And how do they react? I think there there must have been a lot of stigma still. I, like I don't think a university in Massachusetts would necessarily be a place where where actual like homophobic bullying would happen, but but it would kind of define your whole social experience and you would you would definitely know all the other gay kids and it might even be like at this point i'm a kid who's actually bisexual and not gay am i beginning to feel like i've gone in a direction i'm not comfortable with do i want to be there how do i feel about all this i'm not sure looking back on how i was at 18 um, I, I was one of the most sex obsessed kids imaginable. So probably I would just think of myself as bisexual and be sleeping with everybody. I would, I would undoubtedly like get in trouble with older men and older women okay. as much as I possibly could. Do you think there's any particular trouble, good or bad trouble? I think I'm going to say that I spend that I also spend my time at Amherst scheming to transfer to a school in a major city. Where do you set your sights, do you think? I'm going to say that it has occurred to me that if I get good enough grades, I can go to school in New York City. Do you get good enough grades? Let's say that, let's just say that I do. I could get in worse trouble because let's remember that like, I'm not going to be entirely recovered from my early problems through all this. No. I still come from the family I came from. But. Okay. Which does it feel like? Let's let's at least get me to New York City before I, I begin to really fall apart. You're what, probably about 20 now by the time you've managed this transfer. Is it NYU or? I'm thinking of, of Columbia. Okay. So you get to Columbia. It's exciting. Are you in an apartment up there somewhere? I have to have an apartment of some kind. Um, and are you on your own or are you with a roommate? Let's just say that I found a roommate, like a, somebody is advertising a room and I take the room. Well done. Congratulations. It's very impressive. 
I know it's boring, but it's very impressive still. So you're at Columbia, you're studying, you've got an apartment with a, somebody. And how about your love and sex life now? Is it the same as at Massachusetts or is there anybody more sort of interesting staying? By this time in my life in the real world, I, I had an MO of like always having a boyfriend. What was that about that MO of always having a boyfriend? Uh, I think it's just a surrogate family thing, actually. It's um, it's a way of having that kind of backbone of primary social network in your life. At this point, you're in England and you're studying, yes? Yeah, yeah. Where, again? Uh, it, was the, it was the Polytechnic of Central London. Very much not Columbia. <laughs> so do you think that same kind of way of being translates to life at Columbia? Obviously, like, you're, you're different sexually in this life and romantically. At that age, I, I always had a boyfriend, but I would always be cheating on him. Or we had an open relationship. Like I, I, my first marriage, it was, it was nominally an open marriage, which turned into like an absolute train wreck. Did it start as an open marriage? It started as an open marriage. Um, I felt that at the time that it was necessary to, um, to outcompete your partner in the open relationship. You were supposed to be more open than he was, basically. I mean, we didn't actually start dating other people for a while, but when, but when we did, it, it very much became a tit for tat situation. <laughs> I mean, open relationships and open marriages can it feels can work, but it feels like there needs to be a sort of baseline of sort of like there needs to be rules, right? You you kind of lay out certain ground rules, and if those are followed, it seems like it can work if they're sort of respected. Um, did you guys have ground rules? We had ground rules, but he broke them. Um, okay. So I didn't break the ground rules, but like in retrospect, we probably would have been better off if I had broken the ground rules because the main ground rule was that you had to tell immediately if you oh. saw. Um, this turned out to be a mistake because the, the, I was the one who did it first, and he had a complete meltdown after I did it, even though it was his idea in the first place. So. If you're the one proposing the open relationship, your idea of it is always that you're sleeping with other people, not that the other person is sleeping with other people. So, Okay, so back in Columbia, that's not happening. Why don't we step away from relationships for two seconds and just talk about your writing? Because presumably, I mean, Columbia has an amazing creative writing program as well. Um, are you studying writing at all? Or are you are you getting more serious, I guess, about your writing? I think that would be the... The thing that would be different in a way that is not so boring is that probably if I had gone to Columbia instead of the Polytechnic of Central London, I would have had more success with my writing at an earlier age and probably developed as a writer faster. In in my real life, I didn't know anybody. I, I mean, I, I was in a situation where it felt... Um, completely unrealistic for me to really imagine that I would be a writer. Most of the people I knew were, were really not from that world. And it just seemed like a delusional thing to think about oneself. Whereas if you're a Columbia student, nobody is going to treat you as delusional when you say that you want to be a writer. That's actually quite a normal trajectory for a Columbia English student. In real life, when did you publish your first book? You said in your mid-30s. I think I was 33 when it was accepted for publication. And you'd just been, you'd just been sort of toiling on your own that whole time? I just had kind, kind of like crappy jobs. <laughs> in England? In England. Just what kind so of crappy jobs? I love the crappy jobs that creatives have in their early careers. They're wonderful. Uh, I was, you know, I was so bad at holding down jobs and getting jobs and everything to do with jobs that the the only job that I had for any real period of time um, was this crappy typing job where you typed up transcripts of of radio interviews and TV interviews. You know, so yeah. it was it was basically an audio transcription job. You'd be sitting there with 
a headset on all day typing. It was a job a lot of kind of creative people had because it was uh, it was a casual job and you could you didn't have to be there for set hours. So a lot of the other were actors who would take off time to to go and be in performances and so on. You were living in London after you graduated from the Polytechnic. You were living in London and doing this and just trying to write. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, in I, your I mean, large, I mar- I got married when I was just before I graduated from college and then so I had residency at the time okay did that marriage last long enough for you to get a passport basically I I was married to him and then and then I had residency indefinite leave to remain I've been married four times so that's impressive so okay so you're 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 at Columbia. It's all quite tame and respectable, but you are writing more. You've got, what, a couple of years at Columbia, which presumably go okay, because you're slightly less crazy. Um, or maybe not. What yeah, what happens in those last couple of years at Columbia, do you think? So I think probably by this point, I'm used to having a girlfriend, and that's my idea of safety. Okay. So I would probably have a girlfriend who I would drive crazy by cheating on her with guys. That's my projection. I like I was not a good partner at that time in my life, so I would somehow manage to find the thing to do that was most unacceptable. You knew what your sense of safety was, but you would intentionally rattle that by cheating. Yeah, absolutely. And and you know, do things that were hurtful to other people while thinking that somehow it was justified. Okay. Um, Are there any serious girlfriends who you do this to during this time, or is it sort of a series of... Knowing myself, I definitely have found an older woman to live with who is paying the rent. Oh. And then I'm cheating on her. That's that's definitely, that's what I would do. My 20-year-old self was, was pretty chaotic, so, but also very needy. So are you still at university while you're living with this older woman or have you graduated? Oh, I was thinking I was still at university. My memory of myself when I was younger was that I was extraordinarily focused and really only interested in writing and anything else was was a hindrance and an obstacle to getting writing done. And I might have thought sometimes that I should be interested in other things, but in practice, I was not. Which is amazing when you describe yourself as so chaotic and all over the place in every other way. I mean, that's that level of focus is sort of the opposite of that. It's really the one thing in my life that's always been very clear is that it was the only thing I ever was able to stick at or to to concentrate on in a sustained way so that I was able to become good at it and to not disappoint people. Was that part of the impulse, was not to disappoint people? I mean, it's interesting. When I was younger, the real life me who dropped out of school. Sure. I was so sure that I was going to fuck things up and disappoint people that I spent an awful lot of my energy trying to figure out how to feel okay about the fact that I was going to disappoint people (laughs) and fuck things up. So like all of my mental energy and all of my emotional energy... (laughs) when there was a task or when I, when I had a job, I would, I would almost immediately start thinking of ways that I could feel okay about quitting the job on the first day. And if I lasted the first day, then on the second day, it would be about how will I feel okay about quitting my job on the second day. So it wasn't about trying to avoid the disappointing people. It was just about how to sort of settle that with yourself, essentially, once you had done the inevitable disappointing. Yeah, I was absolutely certain that I was going to be as disappointing as it was possible to be. So I spent all of my mental energy figuring out how disappointing it was possible to be and all my emotional energy trying to figure out how to feel okay about it once I had failed in the most disappointing possible way. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of (laughs) mental work. So then presumably you're now planning for how you're going to feel okay about... um, letting down this woman who you're living with, but cheating on. 
maybe I've I've managed to devote my energy in a way that is at least positive, even if it's still kind of juvenile and selfish. I mean, you are allowed to be juvenile and selfish. You're just in your early 20s. Like, it's definitely acceptable. Exactly. What's she doing with a 20-year-old anyway? Like, her, she's not so perfect either. She's not. She's deeply, deeply flawed. Um, what do you think? I have to get a job. But maybe I can get a job at a magazine or something. Oh, that's fun. Is that what you do, do you think? Yeah, let's say I get a job at... Um, I'm trying to think what kind of magazine I could get a job at plausibly. I was such a snob. I wouldn't have wanted to work at a commercial, like a, a women's magazine. I know. I know. I get a job at the Bad Voice. Not as a writer, but just a, like as a copy editor or something. But I'm, I'm in that world of cool New York people. All right. How does that go? How does that job work out? Do you stick with it? Yeah, I stick with that job and I'm always working on my novel. Okay. And then when I'm like 26 years old, I publish my first novel. Oh, congratulations. Thank you. But I'm I'm 26 years old. It's not that terrific, the novel. So it's just an okay first novel that doesn't really get much attention. Which I feel like is sometimes better because I feel like sometimes those really massive debuts then are incredibly difficult to follow. How do you feel about your first novel? Is it the same as, as your first novel when you were in your 30s, or is it something different? I mean, I'm just thinking, I'm probably, let's say I write the novel about Ellen and Jennifer, in fact. Why not write that novel? That seems to be a ready-made novel. That triangle is, is as you say, it's, it's ripe for fiction. Okay, so you write the Ellen and Jennifer novel. Are you still living with your older woman or has has your job and your writing prompted a change in that department? I think by this point, maybe I've decided to to live alone. Let's assume that I earned enough money between my job and the publication of the novel to get my own apartment. You're doing very well, you know. Yeah, I like to think that I would have been at least more financially successful in my, <laughs> my other life. <laughs> And what about the Village Voice? Have you, are you have you moved up at all, or do you move up at all, or you stay copy editing? Here's a fantasy: like maybe in my dreams, they would let me like be an art critic at the Village Voice. I've published a novel. I've worked for them. They know me. Maybe somebody leaves, and and now I'm able to be an art critic. That's like that's my dream, even though I've, I have no official background in art. People used to get all of these dumb jobs like in the 1980s just because they were there in the right place at the right time. So, so you're the art critic at The Village Voice. You're um, living on your own. You've published your first novel. And I look incredibly cool. <laughs> what does that mean? What does looking incredibly cool mean? I don't know. If I, if I knew, I would have looked incredibly cool in my real life. <laughs> But in this life, I do know because I'm an art critic at the Village Voice. You know what to wear and you're probably going to really cool sort of underground fashion shows and stuff. And I'm, you know, going to like new wave shows and all of this. At this point in in England, you're, are you on your second marriage at this point? You're sort of late 20s, hit coming up on 30? Uh, no, I was still, I was still in between marriages. I, I got married again, or I got together with my second husband. We weren't didn't marry immediately when I was thirty one. So, and you're still in 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 England at that point. You're still doing sort of odd jobs and just writing as much as you possibly could. Yeah, yeah. Okay, you're the art critic of the Village Voice. You're just having a really nice time. You look amazing. How long do things stay that way before something shifts? Either a another promotion or a romance or a move. For all that it seems like a cool life, there's probably a lot of backstabbing in that world. And um, I'm and I'm going to imagine like at some point I put a foot wrong, I sleep with the wrong person or I say the wrong thing or something and I'm ousted from my job and I end up not being able to pay my rent. It's impossible actually for me to imagine my life without at least one scenario where I'm unable to pay my rent. Was that a, a condition of real life for a long time? 
yeah for like 15 years i was yeah that was like the the problem above all problems was the chronic inability to pay my rent or if i could pay my rent this month next month was still an unresolved question okay all right so that happens that happens then in new york and what do you do There are two possibilities. Either I end up moving in with the person who I'm currently sleeping with. Okay. Which is, you know, that's the classic solution to the problem for for all people. I don't think I'm... And is that person the person who caused the problem in the first place? Yeah, I I can kind of see that if I was was dating someone at the Village Voice, but then I slept with somebody else and he would... I'm going to make it a him because that just seems like it's more likely to cause this particular kind of trouble. Then I would end up living with him and I would have a a really, like a real boyfriend for the first time. You said that was one of two things that could happen. What would the other thing be that could happen? I would end up living on, on living back with the older woman. All right. Like not, not quite in a relationship like that, you know, the situation that can happen where your ex takes you in off the street. And of course, sooner or later you end up <laughs> sleeping together, but you're not really in a relationship and you sort of have agreed that you've broken up but, and so on. Which one do you think it is? Let's just take, let's just take me to having the boyfriend for the first time so that we can kind of shake things up a little bit. Okay, so this was the this was the guy that caused the scandal, but actually it seems like maybe there's something there's something real there. And you have a proper boyfriend. I'm going to say it like this guy. I'm seeing this guy as being a kind of a a vain, self-involved, but kind of big-hearted person. I've just I've entirely made up a guy now. So is he cute? He's really cute. And both of us are sleeping with other people. So we're kind of like best friends who who sleep together and share this apartment. So then what, um, you've lost your job. What are you going to do about that? Well, I think in this world, I'm fed up and disillusioned with the entire publishing world in New York. So I just get a job working at a coffee shop for a while. And I have like a year of total irresponsibility. Okay. But writing as well. Yeah, I'm writing as well, though. Like I'm, I've had a bit of a crisis with my writing after the disappointing reception of my first novel and my disillusion with the entire world of of downtown New York smart people. I have a fantasy of just being a kind of an ordinary person who is a waitress for the rest of her days and does not participate in the tinsel and the glitter and the false promises. I would imagine, like, have you had that actual fantasy at certain points, like when the writing is hard or um, at any point where you're just like, oh, could I just do something simpler? Oh, always, always. I just, I just, I'm, I'm, as we established at the outset, I'm a completely incorrigible fantasist. All right. So, well, then let's, we'll dive into this one for a minute. You're kind of early 30s now and you're, you're working in a coffee shop. And just kind of being all over the place. How 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 long does that last? How does that go? I think that lasts for longer than is really comfortable. Like I have time to realize that this is actually not a fantasy, but it's but real life, and and that means that I have to write another novel. And do you write another novel? You can see, like, I, I never, I don't seem to be able to imagine a life in which I don't write novels for a living, ultimately. It's clearly core to who you are. Okay, what's this novel? I think this novel has to be a more experimental novel. Okay. So, so it almost doesn't matter what it's about. It's really about, it's about the way in which it's written. And it does get published. And although it doesn't do well financially, it gets more attention. And I become a more kind of established writer okay interestingly right around the time that in your real life you actually published your first novel you're sort of hitting some parallels there are you still living with the guy I think by this time I've I've truly embraced who I am and so I also have a girlfriend and I live between their two places wow okay what's she like I think during this period of my life I'm I'm not really focused on my 
my romantic life. And so both of my relationships are more like friendships. Mm. So the girlfriend is somebody who's really in love with somebody else who lives in a different city now. Okay. So I'm thinking of this like as a period of my life when I try to try to figure myself out and I have these people in my life who are also kind of trying to figure themselves out. Are we now onto your second marriage in real life? We're not going to be able to cover all your marriages, I don't think. We're now onto my second marriage in real life. But it's, I mean, it's a very different setup than a series of intense monogamous relationships that you've created here. And in terms of your writing career in real life, once you published your first novel, did you have that same feeling of being kind of on the map in the literary world? It was not quite like that. It was, my life changed dramatically because I was now a real writer and people treated with me with infinitely more respect. Mm. So it kind of changed my life and made it dramatically better. And I also earned more money. Like I was, I was so impecunious before that. And it didn't last, it didn't last that long. Like there were, there were periods in the next, I don't know, five years when I was really impecunious again. But for a little while, I actually was doing okay. I think my my first novel came out when I was 35 or thereabouts. And at that same time that it came out, my second husband left me. And that was like, so there was this very ambivalent thing where the novel had come out and that was great. But my personal life had fallen apart completely in a really dramatic way. Shortly after that, I moved back to America. So that was really, that was part of the impetus for me moving back to America was that relationship broke up in such a messy, painful way that I actually wanted to be in a place that didn't remind me of my old life. Did you move back to New York? I initially moved back, moved to California. This is this part of the craziness of my actual life is that I'm an adopted child. And so in my 20s, I met my biological parents. Another large part of my moving back to America was that I wanted to get to know them better. Um, and so I moved to California where they live. And did you get to know them better? I mean, I'm still close to my biological mother, but my father stopped talking to me a few years later. So that all was a train wreck after a couple of years, but I, we were close for a while. So interestingly, then, in this unlived life, you haven't tried to do that. I didn't find them. They found me. Did they? Yeah, so they still would have. Okay. And do you think yeah. that you would have had the same desire to go? I mean, life was going relatively well, or life's going relatively well in New York. Do you think that you would have moved in the same way to see them or maybe just gone and had coffee with them in the middle of the country somewhere. I might have moved to California though. Who knows? What do you think? We've, we've got a few minutes left. Do you think you make a move to California or do you stay put in New York? You're doing well. You're focusing on your writing. I'm going to say that I actually stay in New York. Like let's, let's just say that instead of having a crazy life that made no sense as I have, I now kind of settled down, um, find somebody with whom to have a stable relationship, male or female kind of doesn't matter for the purposes of the scenario. Okay. And, um, and we have a child. Do you have children in real life? Yeah. In real life, I don't have children. So so definitely the most unlived thing about my life is not having a child. How does it feel to have a child in this unlived life? Well, I assume because it's a real child in this unlived life, it's a massive pain in the ass that, <laughs> um, that takes over my life and makes everything wildly more difficult, but it's also extremely rewarding. <laughs> I think that's a decent summary. <laughs> what? And you guys stay in the city or do you... Do you I think we go back to the suburbs. We end up back in the suburbs. <laughs> so everything has sort of come full circle. And now my children are going to grow up feeling as if their lives are not real and as if they have to escape from this boring town where nothing real can happen. I don't think there's anything that a parent can do to change 
that sort of thing. It's just, it's just inevitable. Well, my hope is that you would be an amazing guide for them, even if they do feel like they have to flee the suburbs because you have all of this knowledge and wisdom um, that you would bring to parenting, I'm sure. And that we are all very lucky that you bring to your writing. We all get to read it. Thank you, Maria. Thank you so much. That was brilliant. Sandra's unlived life moment must be so resonant for so many. Those times when, for whatever reason, you don't answer a question authentically out of fear of what the response might be, bullying, alienation, or even just a lack of understanding. And of course, repeatedly turning away from authenticity like that can lead us into lives that privilege safety over risk, adventure, and connection. Interestingly, though, it doesn't feel like the life Sandra lived as a result of answering yes to Ellen's question was any more daring than the one she currently lives, despite the colorful sex life, fancy New York job title, and achingly hip wardrobe. And in many ways, it went in the opposite direction, a little more conventional, less outrageous, with a route back to the suburbs where she grew up. In the end, perhaps it doesn't matter so much that Sandra hasn't kissed a girl. She's managed to find a route through to her authentic self all the same. 